I'm just going to come out and tell you about it. Today is Mike Wiersma's birthday. Can y'all say happy birthday? <laughs> we can either ignore it or we can or we can acknowledge it. And I want to acknowledge it. And I also just want to, I mean, this is just a God-given opportunity uh, for me to pause for just one second and say that I thank God for the team of elders that he has given us here in this congregation, uh, the team of shepherds, team of pastors, if you will, that Mike Wiersma participates on. A week and a half ago, we had an elders meeting, and we had just a very sweet time uh, for a big chunk of that meeting, just with Bibles open in the book of Acts, paying attention to um, God's design for the church and God's heart uh, for uh, for his sheep and God's uh, plan for elders and leadership. And it was a convicting, a stirring, a humbling, uh, a faith-building uh, uh, time together. And I just walked away so grateful uh, for these guys that I get to serve alongside uh, as one of the elders along with them. And just kind of on the on this occasion of Mike's birthday, I want to just say, Mike, thanks for your years of faithfulness serving as an elder uh, in this congregation. And to all of the elders more broadly, thanks for your faithfulness, guys. Okay, well, I want to ask you as we continue our sermon series in the book of Proverbs to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18, uh, and uh, if we're honest, we would probably have to admit that for almost all of us, uh, 2020 was a particularly challenging year. Of course, it was challenging in many ways, but it was particularly challenging related to friendships, related to relationships. And so as we turn the corner and begin moving into the year of our Lord 2021, I want to slow down a little bit and listen to what God's word has to say with wisdom for friendships, wisdom for relationships. We had originally planned to spend just one week looking at this topic in the book of Proverbs, but um, not for any kind of long-term reason, but just as we were paying attention to the topic, we just realized this is a really important topic. It's always important for us, but it's really important right now. And so we're going to spend this week and next week also considering some of what the book of Proverbs has to say with wisdom for relationships, wisdom for friendships. This is important for our happiness This is important for our resilience. This is important for our mental health. Relationships matter for being human. This is also a deeply important issue in Christian discipleship. It's connected to the gospel. Our Lord Jesus made a profound proclamation right before his betrayal. He said, quote, a new commandment. I give to you that you love. That's a relational word. It's not just a do this thing, check off the boxes, and you can say you've obeyed the commandments kind of thing. This is a relational word. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you, Jesus says. So you also are to love one another. By this, 
all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 and 35. And a few years ago, I read this little book that I love by Ray Ortland Jr. It's simply called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. And in this book, Dr. Ortland gives us a little explanation or a little unpacking of what Jesus was getting at when he gave us that new commandment to love one another. Ray Ortland describes it like this. He says, the command of Christ is that we love one another. The example of Christ is that we die for one another. The promise of Christ is that our love will show a skeptical world the difference that he really makes. Love is Christ's authorized way for us to be convincing, he says. The world is not impressed by anything about us except the love of Christ. And nor should they be, he goes on to say. If we fail to love one another in ways so striking that we actually start looking like Jesus, then the world has the right to judge that we know nothing of Him. They might be wrong. We might indeed be Christians, but the world is right to dismiss unloving Christians as unchristian. Jesus Himself gave them that right. Those are striking words, aren't they? Ray Orland wrote that book five or six years ago. And I would just want to suggest that on this side of 2020, with all of the us against them stuff that has been going on all over our culture, with all of the us against them stuff, that has played itself out amongst Christians on social media, with all of the us-against-them stuff that has played out in relationships even within the church of Jesus Christ, I want to suggest that these words are even more important than they were five or six years ago when they were first published. It's worth pausing on his convicting words for a minute. If we fail to love each other in ways so striking that we actually start to look like Jesus, then the world has the right to judge that we know nothing of him. And of course, it's easy in our us against them culture to look back at 2020 and blame some national leader or another some political party or another, some media source or another, some group out there or another. It's easy to look around out there and blame somebody else for the divisions and the lack of love that we experience in our lives. It's easy to point the finger at someone else in your family for not being as loving As Jesus, but church family, I want to suggest that there is a better way for us to think about these issues. Instead of pointing the finger out there, instead of pointing the finger at other people in our household and saying they're the reason that we're not loving like Jesus right now, I think it would be healthier for each one of us to approach this issue, this very important issue of relationships and friendships. It would be helpful for each of us to approach this issue not saying they messed it up, 
but saying, I've messed it up. How can I grow in loving in such striking ways that my life and my relationships start to look something like Jesus? How can, how can I grow? In 2020, how was my love for others less than Christ-like? In 2021, how can I grow in loving others more like Jesus? How can I be a friend? Not how should they have been friends, but how can I be a friend whose love reflects the heart of Jesus? And as we've mentioned a number of times throughout our sermon series in the book of Proverbs, we want to grow in love. That's Jesus' command for us. In fact, the New Testament would go so far as to say that all that matters is faith working itself out in love. We want to be loving people, but here's one of the, the ways that the book of Proverbs is so helpful for us. We want to be loving people, but being loving people requires wisdom. It requires more than just a happy emotion. It requires wisdom and direction and guidance for living well and living wisely and working out love in strategic ways in God's world. And so God in His kindness meets us right here in the middle of His Bible in the book of Proverbs with detailed instructions, detailed wisdom, detailed guidance of what love can and might not look like. We've talked about this picture before, but the Bible tells us this huge story of redemption, spanning from creation to the fall to redemption and all the way to the new creation when all things will be when all things will be made new. The Bible tells us this huge story of redemption that includes every tribe, every nation on this planet. But in the book of Proverbs, it's as if the gears of redemption reach all the way down into the cracks in our hearts and our lives and our relationships. The gears of redemption reach all the way down into the details of our friendships. And the gears of redemption begin making a difference in these cracks in the brokenness of our own lives. And so as we pay attention today to some of what God has to say to us about wisdom for relationships, wisdom for friendships, let's listen for God's voice speaking to us in our brokenness and in our need of His wisdom and grace and direction. Next week we'll look at what some of the Proverbs teach us about kind of the positive side of what friendship looks like. This week, I want to pay attention especially to some of the ways that the book of Proverbs shows us what an unwise friend looks like. I was going to do seven habits of a highly ineffective friend or something like that, but for the sake of time, we'll boil it down to just four habits of an unwise friend, just four of them. Here's a first habit of an unwise friend that we see here in the book of Proverbs, specifically in chapter 18. I describe it as a habit of talking without listening. This is one habit of an unwise friend, talking without listening. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, look at it with me if you would. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing 
his opinion. The funny version of this is Dwight Schrute from the TV show The Office, right? Dwight is an aggressive and assertive salesman. He has surprisingly strong opinions about everything from beet farming to what the best kind of car is to how women should be treated in the workplace. He once boasted with complete confidence that he had shot a werewolf. But, he explained with disappointment, by the time I found its body, it had turned back into my neighbor's dog. Let that sink in for a second. And here's the thing, no matter what anybody else says to Dwight Schrute in that moment, at that point, he's not going to listen. He's not open to hearing any alternative narrative about what he may have shot that day. He's convinced that he shot a werewolf which turned back into his neighbor's dog and he doesn't want to hear anybody else's opinion about it. Nobody else is going to change his mind. His only goal in this conversation is to express his opinion and to do so boldly and assertively. There are some people in our culture who celebrate this kind of boldness. If you track along in social media, you'll find circles even within kind of Christian groups that will commend this kind of assertiveness as true biblical manliness. What we need in the church are stronger men. No more of these sissy men. Some Christians today would call this kind of bold, brash assertiveness Biblical manliness. The Bible itself does not call this manliness. The Bible calls this foolishness. You see the same thing. We do both sides here. We see similar things in conversations about cultivating stronger women in the church. Do we want stronger women in the church? Yes. But just speaking your opinion... Boldly and assertively without listening to others. The Bible doesn't call that strength. The Bible calls that foolishness. And maybe like my wife, Katie, you have no interest in the TV show, The Office. That's okay. We can still be friends. But can we agree on this much? Dwight Schrute is a fool. He's a fool who loves the sound of his own voice a little bit too much. And I know it's funny on TV to watch Dwight Schrute being a fool, but some of us need to admit that we've played the part of that kind of fool on social media. No interest in actually listening to what others have to say. No time to actually try to figure out what they mean by something. Many of us have played the part of that kind of fool IRL. IRL stands for in real life. Somebody mentions maybe a friend who is not straight. And now you're just looking for a chance to lecture them about your view of same-sex attraction. 
No interest in listening to what he or she means. No time wasted asking questions. No interest in understanding more. Just straight into expressing your own opinion. Straight into Dwight Schrute combat mode. We could do the same thing with what goes on when you hear someone say, I'm trying to get the vaccine as soon as possible. Or when you hear somebody say, I'm not planning to get the vaccine anytime soon. No time to understand. No time to try to see the situation through their eyes. Just straight into Dwight Schrute combat mode, expressing your own opinion. As Christians, we sometimes do this with words like predestination. As Christians, we sometimes do this with ethical issues like abortion or racism. As Christians, we sometimes do this with issues of parenting. As Christians, sometimes we do this with the educational choices that different families make. Sometimes as Christians, we do this with how other people grieve or with what other people find grieving and perhaps on a hundred other topics. Maybe like the fool named Dwight Schrute, you find yourself in certain conversations just looking for the next opportunity to express your own opinion. No time to listen. No interest in understanding more. But this is not the way of wisdom and love. This is not the way of a wise friend and neighbor, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion, as Proverbs 18.2 says. Or as Proverbs 18.13 puts it, if you want to look to another proverb there, if anyone gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Or, as Proverbs 18, verse 6 says, A fool's lips walk into a fight. The Lord in His kindness offers us this helpful insight for making friendships great again in 2021. Don't play the part of this kind of fool who has a habit of talking without listening. It's a first habit we see of unwise friends here in this passage. A second habit of an unwise friend that we see here in Proverbs chapter 18, I would put like this. It's a habit of avoiding challenging conversations. And maybe this sounds like a contradiction to what I was just saying a minute ago, but it's not a contradiction. Instead, it's a compliment to what we were just reading about in those other Proverbs. See, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 15 tells us that an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. It's a mark of wisdom to be seeking to learn, to be seeking to gain more insight and wisdom. That's what a wise person does. What about the unwise friend? Look with me, if you would, at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. 
He breaks out against all sound judgment. Verse 1 describes something that we see very often in our world today. In fact, I wonder how many of us at some point in our teenage years did something quite like this in our relationship with our parents. We had desires in our hearts. Desires for X, Y, or Z, you kind of fill in the blank. You knew that your parents would not approve of you pursuing those desires. You knew that if you talked about it with your parents, they would not encourage you to just do what you wanted to do. And so what did you do? You don't want to have that challenging conversation when your parents are going to speak into your life and say, I would not advise that. You don't want to have that challenging conversation when others might challenge your perspective. And so instead of living openly and honestly with other people we care about and other people we know care about us, what do we do instead? We think maybe I should keep this hidden. And so you begin to isolate yourself and isolate that part of your life from your parents. How many of us did something like that in our teenage years? How many of us keep on doing that beyond our teenage years? We don't like the challenging conversations that don't just affirm every desire we have in our hearts. And so when we run into situations where we think think we know what someone else's advice would be instead of living openly and honestly and talking about those things with our friends who we care about and our friends who we know care about us. We say, I'd rather not have that challenging conversation. I'd rather isolate myself a little bit. I'd rather isolate at least this part of my life. How do I know that people do things like this? Well, in part because I've done things like this before. And in part because people have been doing these kinds of things for thousands of years. Thousands of years ago. God had it written into his word, this observation that the person who isolates himself, the person who isolates herself, is very often seeking his or her own desires. I've had to learn over time that when a friend cares enough about me to challenge my perspective, that's a friendship that I should lean into instead of thinking that's a friendship I should run away from. I've had to learn that over the years, but I've got to be honest, that was a slow one for me to learn. It was a slow one for me to catch on to. And to be sure, there are exceptions to this kind of stuff. There are abusive relationships where you are not pursuing your own selfish desires to say, I'm done with this conversation and we're not going to continue it. There are situations where we hear out a friend and we listen to them and we listen well enough so that we can repeat back to them what they're saying to us. And they say, yes, that is what I'm saying to you. And then we say, I don't see it the same way. Can I take some time to think about that more? Or perhaps as, you know, as friends, 
maybe can, can you extend enough grace for me to say, I've heard you out even if I'm not agreeing with you at this time. So there are exceptions to this kind of thing. Yes, that's true. And it's also true that we can't talk to everybody all the time. We run out of energy. Even for Jesus, the perfect human being. There were the crowds. There were the twelve. There were the three. And he needed time alone with his father when he was sorrowing. Let's not pretend that we're holier than Jesus or stronger than Jesus and that we have time to talk with everybody about everything. There are exceptions, there are limits to this, but I know that the observation of Proverbs 18.1 has played out too many times in my own life. And I hope that for some of us, the observation of Proverbs 18.1 can be something of a holy warning from God. Don't isolate yourself as a way of hiding from challenging conversations. Let me say something that I don't think will be quite fully true for everybody in this room. Okay, I'm stepping a little bit away from the Bible and just kind of talking about application. Could be right, could be wrong. And I realize as I'm saying this, I'm going to go ahead and paint with some really broad brushstrokes. And you know what happens when you paint with broad brushstrokes? You don't always get it exactly right. Okay? I'm going to go ahead and say something that I think is probably not perfectly, precisely accurate, but let me just try this out. Let me paint with broad brushstrokes for a minute. If you are 40 years old or over, more likely than not, you and I need to work on the first point in particular. We need to work on listening carefully before we just speak our minds or share our opinions. But if you're in your 30s or your 20s or your teenage years, I realize I'm painting with broad brushstrokes here, but odds are you've got a strong conviction about listening to other people. And empathizing with them. But you might need to digest this second aspect of biblical wisdom about not avoiding the challenging discussions. Now I'm 40 years old. Right in the middle. And for my part, I think I need to learn both of those lessons. And maybe a lot of us in this room need to work both on not just speaking my mind without listening and not avoiding those challenging discussions. But painting with broad brushstrokes, I wonder how true that might be for you. Let me put it this way. Let's just kind of pause here before we keep pushing on to listening to the Bible's description, to God's description of us through His Word of wisdom for friendships and relationships. If we just take these two, these two themes, these two topics that we see in Proverbs 18 so far, which of these do you especially need to grow in? Is it the wisdom of not just talking without listening? Perhaps some of us need to grow in that way. Is it the wisdom of not avoiding those challenging discussions? Perhaps some of us need to grow in that way. Both of these are part of God's wisdom 
for how we love each other well, for how we're going to do relationships and experience renewal and restoration in our relationships in our lives. So, so far we've noticed that an unwise friend will talk without listening and that an unwise friend will avoid challenging discussions and relationships. Here's a third habit of an unwise friend that we see here in Proverbs chapter 18. A third habit of an unwise friend is stewing on the negatives. Look with me, if you would, at verse 8 of chapter 18. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. (laughs) I just love this description. This is good poetry. It gives us a picture that sticks with us. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Let's just think about that word picture for a moment. What is it describing? One of the interesting things about this particular proverb, and I think other proverbs do this. I know there's one I have in mind that we'll get to in a few weeks that I want to point out to you especially. But a lot of the proverbs are written in such a way that it's not crystal clear who exactly it's talking about. For whose soul are the words of the whisperer like delicious morsels? Is it the one doing the whispering? Or is it the one listening to the whispering? Maybe it's both, actually. The book of Proverbs warns us repeatedly about this issue of whispering. And in the Hebrew language, this idea of whispering to one another always carries kind of a negative connotation with it, even though it could describe a few different kinds of things. Sometimes that whispering is just whispering about the complaints. It's just whispering about the grumblings. It's just whispering about the negatives and the, I wish that person were not like that. Have you ever whispered about the negatives kind of in your own heart? Have you heard whispers about other people? The book of Proverbs warns us that when we tolerate whispers about other people, it gets inside of us. And it kind of sticks with us. It gets into deeper parts of our souls than we would expect at first. Sometimes those whispers are just the negative complaints. Sometimes it's outright gossip or slander. Passing along of things that are not even true. I heard a few rumors about myself this last year. Have you ever had that experience where someone says, well, so-and-so has told me that you, what, and, I, and you're like, what, whoa, where, who said that? That's not true. But it doesn't even particularly matter here in the way that this proverb talks about it, whether it's just the kind of grumbles and complaints about something that's actually the case, or whether it's passing along reports that are not true. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8, warns us that we can be poisoned by entertaining and savoring and stewing on the negatives that get whispered in our own soul or get whispered into our ear from others. And the more we stew on these negatives, the more unhealthy not only our relationship with that person becomes, 
the more health, unhealthy things become deep within us, right? It's not just hurting your relationship with that person. It's destroying something inside of you. The rot is happening right in here. And Proverbs 18 gives us an interesting perspective on this, although I'm not going to say much about it. It also gives us this piece of wisdom in chapter 18, verse 17, which says, The one who states his case first seems right. Of course, we see this with news that we read. Read a news article, seems right to me. Of course, we see this when we hear a whisper, a grumble. A complaint about somebody else? Yeah, that seems right. Proverbs 18, 17 goes further. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. See, sometimes with news, we need to listen not only to the first article we read, but we need to read an article from another perspective to see what else Someone might be saying about it. So we get a more full-orbed understanding of the picture. And the same is true in relational news. Sometimes instead of allowing ourselves to believe something, however believable it sounds, the first time it hits our ears, we need to go and we need to check in on the story. We need to go and ask the person themselves about it. We need to talk with them. We need to learn a little bit more before we come to conclusions and allow those whispers to dig down a deep hole, a deep a home deep within our souls where it can spread its rot within our hearts. This is a third habit of an unwise friend. It's a habit of stewing on the negatives. And let me move on for the sake of time to a fourth habit of an unwise friend which is a habit of taking offense. It's a habit of taking offense. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, if you want to look at verse 19, says a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. And there is a sense in which this proverb might be kind of a warning. Saying, if somebody else out there is offended with you, be careful. Their perspective is not going to be easily changed. There's something of a warning for our relationship with that person over there, so to speak. That as we said earlier, I think the most helpful way for us to read this as disciples of Jesus today is to say, how do I contribute to this? What are the situations or scenarios or relationships in which I can fall into this habit of taking offense myself and holding on to those offenses over time? In the Hebrew Bible, offenses come in a variety of ways. Sometimes offenses occur for justifiable reasons when wrongs really have been committed. And so this idea of an offense shows up in the relationship Uh, between Jacob and Esau. Jacob really did wrong Esau. He did him wrong. He deceived him. No wonder Esau felt a bit of offense there. He had been wronged. Other times in the Hebrew Bible, this idea of taking offense is not in a scenario where we were actually wronged. 
It's taking an offense over something that wasn't actually wrong to begin with. For example, when David goes out to the battlefield, if you know the famous story of David and Goliath, and the way we tell it to little kids, which is kind of cleaned up in some ways, but we tell it to little kids and David's bringing like a sack lunch for his brothers, right? His dad made sandwiches for them, um, you know, and he's taking Lunchables to his older brothers and he gets there with the Lunchables and he says, here, older brother, I brought Lunchables for you. And what happens next? His older brother is offended that David is there. What did David do wrong? He's just delivering food. To his brothers. There's no reason for offense there. And yet how easily offended are we as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, if I could use that phrase. How easily offended are we? That whether it's real wrongs that have been committed against us or just somebody bringing us food at the wrong time. Maybe we're a little bit hangry and cranky. And somebody shows up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now all of a sudden there's this offense. And all of a sudden, we're just, how easily offended are we as people, right? And the book of Proverbs is warning us against how easily we can take offense and how deeply we can let these offenses dig in. So much so that when we take offense, whether it's somebody bringing a meal at the wrong time or somebody who's really done something wrong to us, We can take offense in such a way that no matter what another person comes and tries to talk to us about, we are just like a fortified castle. No way. No way am I softening my grip on these offenses. The book of Proverbs is warning us that this is the way of an unwise friend, not the way of love working itself out in wisdom. To take offense easily and hold on tightly. And so the question comes, how do we learn not to be people who take offense easily and hang on tightly? Remember what we said way back at the beginning of our sermon series in the book of Proverbs? We paid attention to this key idea that shows up in chapter 1 of Proverbs. And it shows up at the end of chapter 9, which is the end of the first section of the book of Proverbs. And it shows up again at the very end of the book of Proverbs in chapter 31. It kind of bookends each section of the book. It shows up over and over again throughout the book. It's this idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not just fear that's the beginning of wisdom. That's misunderstanding the concept. It's having a reverence and respect for the Lord. It's having a reverence and respect for Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Knowing Him, revering Him, worshiping Him, respecting Him. In such a way that we're not sent away in terror from him, but drawn to bow down in reverence and worship before him. This is where wisdom begins. And remember we said this is not the beginning of wisdom in such a way that it's like here's your first lesson and then you'll move on from it. It's the beginning of wisdom 
in such a way that knowing the Lord is like the ABCs of wisdom. The ABCs are the first thing you learn in kindergarten. And yet you're also using those ABCs at every level of your education for the rest of your life. The fear of the Lord is like that. Knowing God is where it all begins, but knowing God is also the essence of wisdom every step along the way. How then does knowing the Lord, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, how does that teach us something about being friends who don't take offense quite so easily and don't hold on to our offenses quite so tightly? How does that change things? It doesn't mean that we take a low view of sin. The Lord does not take a low view of sin. It doesn't mean that we disregard any ideas of consequences. Our Lord does bring accountability to His people. But our Lord, who has a very deep and profound view of the wrongness and the evil of human sin and rebellion, and our Lord, who takes accountability very seriously, is a God who is merciful and gracious from His very heart. From the very depths of His being, He is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity. And the pages of the Old Testament are flowering with these beautiful portrayals of what his heart is like toward his sinful people like us who have rebelled against him and wronged him with our hearts and our words and our attitudes and our actions. How does our Lord treat us in our sin? Psalm 103 verse 12 gives us this picture of how our Lord deals with us in our sin. It tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I try to let that sink in. There is such a thing in literature as hyperbole. Overstating something for the sake of effect. I'm telling you, the person who wrote Psalm 103 wrote this line in such a way that there's, there's no way to mistake the fact that this is not hyperbole. It's not saying God is kind of forgiving. It's saying, you trace out how far it is from the east to the west. Trace it out. And what's the point? You can't figure that out. It's unfathomable to figure out how far east is from west. Why? Because His forgiving grace is unfathomable toward us in our sins. That's what our Lord is like from His very heart. And through the prophet Micah, the Lord reveals that His intention for His people is to take our sins and to hurl them to the bottom of the ocean. This was written by Micah, 
like 2,600 years ago, if I got that off by a century, forgive me, pardon me. Uh, but about 2,600 years ago, listen, he knew nothing of the challenger deep. He knew nothing of the depths of the oceans that science has led us to discover. And yet, the deeper we realize the deepest canyons of the ocean truly are, the more real and profound we discover the words of Micah truly are. He takes our sins and he hurls them out into the sea where they will sink and never be seen again. Or there are the beautiful words of Isaiah, appropriate on Snowmageddon Day, January 31, 2021. When Isaiah takes this picture of snow, and Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet. Remember what I said a minute ago. The Lord does not take our sins and wrongs and offenses lightly. He takes them very seriously. And yet he says, though your sins are like scarlet, there's truth. Here's another truth. They shall be white like snow. And when we live in these days when the snow just dumps down all over the land, and we go to sleep at night and there are places that are kind of muddy brown and there are streets that are black, And we wake up in the morning and everything is dazzling white, transformed overnight, not by a single thing we have done, but by his beautiful provision for us. It's a picture for us of his forgiving mercy toward his people, which is new every morning. You know, we live here in Illinois, and so we get to see a lot about the life cycle of snow. It starts out dazzlingly beautiful, and it doesn't stay that way. (laughs) It gets that murky, grayish, brownish color awfully quickly, right? And then if it gets over 32 degrees, it just gets nasty. But here's the thing. His mercies are new every morning. Six inches, ten inches, twelve inches of snow covering it all deeper than we can dig. Deeper than the The harshest environment can melt it back into muddy brown or scarlet red for our sins. New every morning. Listen, when we know this God, the covenant Lord, the Lord who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord who revealed Himself to His people Israel, the Lord who has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ, in in whom we have discovered grace upon grace. When we know Him as our Lord, what begins to happen to our hearts? Well, there's a tendency that we certainly have to be wronged by other people and to say, okay, I'm going to forgive it. And a day later, a week later, ten days later, we're still thinking about it and that snow is just melting. It's turning back into that muddy brown and we're getting right back into our offenses and resentments. But we need to keep going back to the one whose mercy is new every single morning. Who never lets his forgiveness for us grow stale. 
who never lets it melt away and fade back into muddy brown. When we know Him, and when we experience His grace covering us and changing us, what begins to happen? Well, the fear of the Lord turns out to be the beginning of wisdom for us. Knowing Him becomes the way that we begin to walk out a new kind of relationship with other people. A new kind of relationship in which we learn from Him not just to forgive once and then see how fast it melts. But we learn to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. Not minimizing sin. Not ignoring the consequences. But agreeing with His wisdom. And His love and His mercy and His grace. Which delights. Delights. To shower our lives day after day. With mercy upon mercy. Here's my suggestion to us today. At the end of 2020 and looking into 2021, we need some redemption, some renewal, some restoration in our relationships. We need a renewal of love for one another in the family of Christ and a renewal of love for one another that will shine to the ends of the earth with the love of Christ. We're not going to create that on our own. But the Lord in His mercy has given us wisdom and direction for our lives. And more than that, He's given us the provision of His grace that we need. The provision of mercy that is new every day. The provision that we need to experience His love and to spread His love all the way until that day when He comes and makes all things new. And so, by His new everyday mercy, living as people ourselves whose sins are covered and shining now white as snow. Let's love one another with wisdom as disciples of our Lord Jesus. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come.